0: CrossPoint Church's weekly sermon audio from Lead Pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about CrossPoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Today we're going to be in Psalm 130. So again, if you have a Bible, open it there. We live in a culture that is uh, that is dominated by the immediacy of 24-hour news. Have you have you noticed this? I mean, we you know this this room is probably divided into, you know, Auburn, Georgia, uh, CNN, Fox News, kind of depending on, I guess, your political slant, and I I really don't care to even touch on that. I mean, Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. Um, he, He votes for himself every time, and so do I. But there's this culture of immediacy and urgency in our news, and if you notice on both of all of the, really all of the 24-hour news channels, you ever notice that ticker at the bottom that's just constant streaming news? And oftentimes it's breaking news. And, and oftentimes that breaking news is just President Obama landing at the White House in the helicopter going. I mean, that, that's not breaking news. It's just a president coming back from Camp David. But it tunes our hearts into this, I gotta know what's going on. We, we are a culture that hates slowness. We hate silence we loathe, we absolutely loathe to wait. In fact, if you, uh, if we don't get quickness, we will take our business elsewhere. Thank you very much, won't we? I mean, we need to offer you no other example than just hang out at the grocery store or at Walmart or at Target in the checkout line, and God forbid there be a young mother with three small children in her grocery cart and a purse the size of Texas rummaging through her purse for the little little Winn-Dixie saver thing and she can't find it and God forbid that there be more than two or three people behind her in the line and then God forbid that there be some sort of less than sharp clerk at the counter who can't really scan everything and everybody in line is just standing there acting out passively, aggressively with loud sighs the nerve of this young frazzled mother to make me wait for 30 seconds (laughs) even our beloved cultural icon chick-fil-a has been beat into submission and has busted up their parking lot and has given us a second drive-through lane (laughs) because again god forbid that we wait for a minute for our spicy chicken sandwich with pepper jack cheese, hold the pickles, cup of buttermilks and a large lemonade. God forbid. God forbid we have to wait for that for more than a minute or two. We we hate waiting. We are no uh, I am a nervous, anxious, hurried soul. I'm always looking at my droid phone. I have a little alert set on it to ding whenever there's an email. And no matter if my little boy is telling me about some great adventure, ding, oh, uh, I got to look at it because maybe the president of Nigeria might be wanting to wire me $10 million. (laughs) We are anxious, hurried people. And this particular psalm, Psalm 130, cuts across the generations and is a, it's, a, it's medicine for the hurried American soul. So let's read it and then I'll work my way back through it. Now Psalm 130 is in the middle of what we call the Songs of Ascent. They are the uh, Psalms 121 through 134 and that collection of songs psalms which is the is a word for songs was the hebrew or jewish sort of songbook for when they would go to jerusalem for their annual feasts and the reason why it's called songs of ascent is because most of the jewish people in the old testament would live kind of in the lower lands and jerusalem the city is on a higher elevation, and so all of these people in the rhythm of their life as they as a nation would follow God and and follow the, 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 the feasts and the festivals of the Old Testament that would gather them together um, every few months to come to Jerusalem for worship. They would ascend. They would literally, physically ascend Jerusalem as they were going from their small little rural towns to Jerusalem. And so it's a physical ascent, but also these Psalms, 121 through 134 are a, a spiritual ascent into the presence of God and they give, they give just the reality of the difficulty of coming near to God. And that's where we find ourselves in Psalm 130. So let me read through it and pray and then I'll, we'll work our way back through it. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word i I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption." And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply this to our lives. Father, I come to you in the beautiful, trustworthy, rock-solid name of Jesus. I come to you confessing my anxiety and nervousness and my hurriedness and my lack of attention and uh, just the the constant anguish of our souls that we all feel in this room that makes us insecure before our only one place of security, which is you. So Lord, would you help us now? Would you calm us down as a people? Certainly, Lord, just within this room of a couple hundred folks, there are innumerable situations that are causing us stress and diverting our attention and and are competing with your sovereign goodness for our allegiance. So Lord, would you now use my feeble and weak, really weak words, and would you do something divine and supernatural? Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? And would you help us see Christ would you help us see your way? Lord, if there's people in this room that truly do not know Jesus, would you, as Peter writes in the New Testament, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God, even as we're speaking about something not directly about what Jesus did for us? God, would you, would you through your illuminating Holy Spirit, come and breathe life into them so that they would repent and believe and turn and trust in Jesus? God, for the rest of us, especially, God, for some reason, I'm feeling a particular burden for men who are insecure, anxious, and nervous. That's their default. God, would you settle us down and teach us today by your wisdom, not by some pragmatic step that I can give them, but by your wisdom, teach us what it means to wait for the Lord. Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. This psalm is broken down, I think, into four parts. The first two verses, 1 and 2, then 3 and 4, then 5 and 6, and then 7 and 8. And so if you're just following along with me, I don't have any notes on the screen like I usually do. I'm just going to kind of work our way through, I think, four things that this psalm hits on. The first is, the first couple of verses, which is crying to the Lord. What does that look like? What does it mean to cry out to the Lord? A second little block, verses 3 and 4, talk about how the Lord forgives. And we're going to spend some time talking about that and what the implications are of that. The fifth and sixth verses are waiting for the Lord. And then the final two verses are hoping in the Lord. So crying to the Lord, being forgiven by the Lord, waiting for the Lord, and hoping in the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, let me read them again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We don't really know who wrote this psalm. I think the main assumption, of the, the, the uh, dominant assumption is that it was King David who wrote many of the psalms and many of these psalms of ascent. And we don't really know the particular situation that he is in, but this psalm is kind of a come one, come all, because it's sort of ambiguous enough to where I think all of us can fit our life into this psalm. But there's, a, there's just an honest, Realness about this psalmist and where he finds himself. He says, Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Notice just as we kind of orient ourselves to what it is to cry to the Lord, that the psalmist is admitting that he's in the depths and that he's not sort of blaming the Lord for his lack of attention up to this point, and he's not blaming some enemy or some foe or some person in his life for being in those depths, but he is, he is crying for, for mercy in this situation. Although there may have been other situations or other people or other circumstances that brought this psalmist into this situation, he's not focused on those things. He's focused solely on God and his need, his personal need for mercy in that moment. What does it mean to, to cry to the Lord, or to shout to the Lord? I think, just to give you kind of a, a definition here, not, not necessarily breaking down that Hebrew word, but a definition of what it means to, to shout or cry to the Lord. I think that in this context, it is an unreserved, emphatic, focused plea for God's help and rescue. I think this language is, is awkward for us as Americans. Because we, we have this, I, I know I do, we have this insatiable need for everything to be sort of pragmatic and functional. And we want, we want three or four steps out of a situation. And that's not what this psalm gives us. The, the writer is just crying out to God. I think in particular men struggle with this idea because we, we are rugged individualists. And the, the culture of idolatry that we live in makes us kind of be sort of men that just sort of suck it up. And it has created, in I think in American culture, uh, a real inability of men to sort of, uh, <laughs> ironically enough, I'm wearing a pink shirt today, uh, my, my daughter helped me pick it out, but I, uh, the, the, we live in a culture where men have a very difficult time sort of really being in touch with kind of just raw, true emotion. And I, I don't know what it is, it's, an, it's, a, it's a nervousness, it's an anxiety, maybe it's a father wound, we didn't have it modeled well before us, maybe we've sort of bought into this lie where we've just got to suck it up and do it, but we, it's like we don't, we, oftentimes we don't know how to express ourselves, and I think at the root of this, especially to God, let alone to our wives and other people important in our life, and I think at the root of this really is an idolatry. Because in that moment when we are sort of like, oh, what if I just really just grab a hold of God and go whatever, whatever this looks like in your life, I'm talking about how we worship, how we talk to other people, just how we the passion that we have for life and God, it's like we hold back because we're, we're scared what it will feel like when it comes out. And I think at the root of that is idolatry. And what I mean by that is in that moment on the throne of our lives, we are putting our own desire for security or lack of embarrassment or, or a secure future on the throne rather than really just saying, God, I need you. I need you. I don't know what I'm doing. There is a, there is a question that lingers in the heart of every man is whether or not he's really, he's really got what it takes. Does he, does he know what he's doing? And God forbid that any man admit that he just needs Help! And this psalmist is shouting out across the centuries with just rawness, saying, God, I need you. I need you. What does it actually mean to cry to the Lord? I, I think it has a million different applications in our life. I think it means for some of us just, for once, just sitting down and spending some time alone and praying and just letting your heart be open and bare before God. I think for some of us it means just sitting down with your wife and just looking her in the eyes and connecting with her and saying, honey, come alongside me and help me in this. I I just need you to fight with me. Maybe even just in the way we gather together, maybe it means that you're just, you kind of lean forward in the foxhole a little bit, and you're the type of guy that carries his Bible around. And when the songs start, you just, just yes, God, I worship you. God, I need you. I, I am here to expose my life and my weaknesses to you, God. What does that look like in, in your life? But here's, here's the deeper question, because we could spend all day talking about different instances and different situations and what it looks like in our life. Here's my question to you before we move on to the next set of verses think about this for a second. What keeps you from crying to the Lord? I mean, what is keeping you from really being passionate in your pursuit of God? Is it time? Is it is it just a lack of priority? Is it fear that if you really go that way with God that you might be disappointed or that you might not do it right or that you'll be ridiculed? What, what is it? Some sin, some self-absorption, some embarrassment. What does it look like to you? What, what thing do you need to get over? What idol do you need to die to in order for you to just really passionately pursue God? Hey, personally, you know what my thing is? I, I struggle still, and I'm getting better at it by God's grace. But just this, this desire to please people just this desire to kind of make everybody happy. And so I sort of hedge sometimes the truth of God in a situation that I know as a pastor and preacher of the word that I need to bring in a certain person's life because I just, I want to be soft with them because, and I chalk it up to sort of pastoral sensitivity, but at the end of the day, really, it's just sort of an idolatry because I really don't want that person to run away from me when I give them kind of straight truth. I have to constantly die to my own sense of, Self-approval uh, from other people. I constantly have to die to that, to be the man that God has called me to be. What, what, what do you need to just die to to cry to God, to shout out to God, to passionately pursue God? What's that look like in your life? Well, let's keep going. In the next couple of verses, the psalmist continues in his humility, and he writes in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. I love this. I love this. This verse here is so beautiful. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Oh, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You know, we're in depth. It's very—it's just our natural tendency to sort of blame shift. Like if you have kids, you know all about blame shifting. I mean, we we have one kid in particular. I won't mention his name, so it's obviously not Bella. And he's, well, anyway, he, I mean, everything is always somebody... Actually, come to think of it, all of them are like this, really. It's always somebody else's fault. Like, you know, if you, Dad, you know, Joe did this, or Jake did this, or Abraham did this, we're just constantly, because when when life kind of starts to crowd us and threaten us a little bit, immediately is our natural tendency to look at our girlfriend, or our wife, or our husband, or our job, or our church, or whatever, and say, if they would just, if you would just, come on, if this was just a better situation, I mean, Come on, and and it's just blame shifting. It's just blame shifting in this psalmist, I love it. He doesn't say, well, if Israel had a better financial situation, if 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 the Philistines weren't such dirty, rotten, uncircumcised scoundrels, if none of that, if my wife would cook better, or if if whatever, if the if the trojans wouldn't be on probation and if Pete Carroll wouldn't have left USC for the Seahawks and I mean I don't know what your problems are (laughs) we have this tendency to blame shift but the psalmist there he says Lord if you if you were to really divvy up rock piles of what made me get into the situation Lord I could not stand we Do you recognize your tendency to slip into self-righteousness and judgment of other people? Do you recognize that? One of my uh, spiritual and theological heroes was a man named Jonathan Edwards. Maybe you're familiar with him. If you took American history as a kid, you probably had to read his most famous American sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God which gets a really bad rap by the way. It's actually a beautiful, beautiful sermon about God's mercy and his desire to save whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. But Jonathan Edwards as a young man wrote 70 daily resolutions. I've read this before here a few times. In fact, it's become so important in my walk and sanctification that I have written this particular resolution in the back flyleaf of my Bible because I want to read it often as I tend towards self-righteousness and judgment and blame shifting in other people. And this is what Jonathan Edwards wrote as one of his daily resolutions that he would read every day. This is number eight of his daily resolutions. It took him a few years to write all of them, and he would read these every day. He was a pastor who was acquainted with brokenness of people and difficulty and strife in the 1700s. And this is what he wrote, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself, and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Contrast that with the self-help, blame-shifting culture of our day. What Edwards is saying is, when he says, when I am acquainted with the brokenness of my fellow man, whoever it may be, I let that be a, an occasion for self-examination, for me to say, oh, what a wretched sinner I am, and how much I am in the need of God's grace right now. So let All of the brokenness around me produce a humility in me so that I would stand before the Lord like this psalmist and say, oh God, who could stand? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But here's a question I have out of this. Is everybody, the psalmist says here, we have this great iniquity, but God, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Is everybody forgiven of their sins? Is it just kind of something that just sort of happens because we're Americans? I realize I'm a little heavy on the sports references today, but uh, recently the owner of the New York Yankees, George Steinbrenner, passed away. Now, I don't know anything about George Steinbrenner. I don't know anything about his life or anything about his faith or where he stood with the Lord, but it made me again remember how common it is in our American culture when a when a celebrity passes away and they spend a week eulogizing that person on the news shows. And without fail, and certainly in this situation, without fail, they would have current and former Yankees. And they would just say, and I realize this is sort of part of just being socially nice. People would get on and say, well, the the boss, as they would call him, he's he's in a better place and he's going to be looking down on us play from the big skybox in the sky, so to speak. I realize it's not you know, socially acceptable to get on Sports Center and say, he was a jerk. I think he's burning in the pits of hell. I mean, I, I, don't, I understand that. And I don't, I don't know anything about Mr. Steinbrenner's life. But we do this with virtually all public figures or virtually anybody in our world that we know, just an acquaintance that passes away and we're just kind of nervous and anxious and we say something just to be socially comforting and we say, oh, well, they're, they're in a better place. They're in heaven now. Sort of this underlying cultural assumption that everybody just sort of gets there. But do you realize, friends, the Bible is very, very clear about who actually goes to be with the Lord forever or who more immediately whose sins are forgiven. Only those people who have turned from self-reliance, who have repented is the biblical word, and trusted in Jesus are forgiven of their sins and saved. This is the heart of the gospel, and it must be reminded, it must be preached again and again, and it never can be obscured if a church is to be healthy you realize, friends, if you're just here for the first time, or maybe you're here, you know, and you're not quite sure about what the gospel is and what the Christian message is, this is the heart of it, that we stand opposed to God. The Bible clearly presents us as rebels who have chosen our own way. We have thumbed our nose at the creator who is good and gracious to us. And as a result of all of our sin, every person from Adam and Eve to us, because of our nature being children of sin in Adam, and because of our own choice, we have all rebelled against God. And this sin has brought with it the consequence, not just of a less than optimal life, but it's brought with us as Romans chapter five says, the consequences of spiritual death. We stand opposed to God. We stand under God's wrath and judgment, Ephesians two says, and we are spiritually dead and separated from God. And we must turn and trust in him. And the answer to human sin and rebellion is is that God, and this is the message of the scriptures, God sends Jesus, God in the flesh to live the life that we were called to live but failed to do so. He lives a perfectly obedient life to God here on this earth. The Bible says in Hebrews that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. That means that he wasn't a robot. That means that he faced everything that you faced and he conquered it. And so he built up this Storehouse of righteousness during his life here on this earth, and then he laid down his life on a cross. He died as a substitute for you. You see, God's wrath, God's anger against our rebellion, could rightly be poured out on every single person, but God, in his kindness, offers salvation in Christ, and he pours out his wrath on Jesus on the cross. So, you're not saved from the devil if you're a Christian, you're not saved from yourself. You're not saved from sin. You are primarily saved from God because God is righteous and holy and just. And Jesus becomes, Robert did a great job of explaining this last Sunday. He becomes the wrath absorbing sacrifice for us. The biblical word is propitiation. And he dies for us and he absorbs God's anger against human sin. This is the critical part. For those who will repent and believe in Jesus, for those who will turn from self-reliance and trust in Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be converted. Now, I explained this really thoroughly a couple of weeks ago in a message called, What Does It Mean You Must Be Born Again? And What Does It Mean to Be Converted? Here's the beauty of that, friends, because you may be saying, well, I can't do that. I don't have the heart. I mean, I'm dead in my sins. I realize that. I can't I can't be a Christian. I can't turn from God. It's, now, I'm not asking you to muster self-righteousness, friends. This is the beauty of the gospel, is the gospel actually gives what it commands. The gospel brings life. And when God intends to save a person, he gives them the very thing that he calls from them, which is faith. So even the faith that you may now feel swelling up within you is given to you by God to exercise in Christ. So you turn from self-reliance. You turn from faith in yourself. And the life that God gives in the gospel that I am speaking to you right now hits your heart, it makes it alive. And then your first sort of breath, your first breath is faith in the risen, crucified, and risen, victorious Christ who has died and rose again for you. The people that do that, who turn from sin, who have a new heart, and exercise the life of that new heart in faith in Jesus Are the ones who are forgiven nobody else that is the christian message friends and those are the ones that this psalmist i mean everything is about jesus in the old testament don't think oh this is the old testament what was forgiveness in the old testament the old testament was written to point towards what jesus did on the cross would do on the cross the whole bible is about jesus so when you're reading the story about David and Goliath, for example, it's not that we can muster up our courage and fight the giants in our life with a little flannel graph Sunday school lesson. Good, Johnny, you can fight the giants, go. No, the message of David and Goliath is, is that Jesus is a, David is a picture of Jesus who slays the giant of our sin for us. The, the Moses is not a it's not a story about leadership and overcoming nervousness. It's a story. He's a picture of Jesus, who rescues his people when they can't rescue themselves. And so, this line in this psalm about forgiveness is not encouraging the Jews to do better, but it is pointing towards a Savior who once and for all did better for us and preaches the gospel which lands on hearts like yours and some will reject it and continue on in self-righteousness or sin or some will receive it and it'll bring life and your first response when you come to life is faith and trust and only those who do that are the ones that are forgiven. So friend, if that's you right now, turn and trust in Jesus. We, we don't, listen, listen, We don't want you to fill out a card or repeat. Those things can be helpful. Repeating a little sinner's prayer. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be forgiven. Repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. If you have not done that yet, and you are hearing me right now, and it's making sense to you, and your heart is being stirred, I believe that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is hitting your heart, giving you life, saving you even as we speak. Here's your responsibility, just like it's the responsibility of every baby that comes out of every womb. And I've been there four times for this. Breathe with repentance and trust in Jesus. Here's my question. Have you been forgiven? Have you been forgiven? What a shame. What a shame it would be if we continued to add people here to this church. And what a shame it would be. You say, Brad, why do you hit this almost every week? Well, because we're a Christian church, and that's the Christian message. But what a shame it would be if we moved into a new building, we grew, and let's say we got to be 500 people, and let's say we got to be a thousand people. And by the way, I don't care anything about numbers. I don't. But what a shame it would be if we continued to grow as a church, but we lost that central message of what it means to be a Christian. Friends, I don't care about anything else other than you being saved and growing in the Lord. And so if you are not yet a Christian. It has become evident to you. You need to be forgiven today. Have you been forgiven? Repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. Come talk to me afterwards. We'll talk about what that means. And if you already are a Christian, and if you roll your eyes at preachers who hammer this home every day, oh, friends, your tired heart needs to be revived because when you hear the preaching of the gospel, it should bring joy to your heart. It should stir your affection for Jesus. Listen, I I have spent 14 15 years waking up next to my wife, looking at her, and listen, life has, life has, life has, it's affected both of us, but when I look at her, I still love her, and when I see her from afar, and I I see the sun hit her red hair, and when I hear her voice talking to somebody, it's not, oh, I know that, it stirs my affection for her. When I see her handling our children well, and when I see her just exhibiting integrity and beauty, it doesn't just, oh yeah, that's my wife. When I see that I'm reminded, even though I'm amazingly familiar with her in every way that you can be familiar with a person, it stirs my affection for her. And so if you are a Christian and the gospel has become stale to you, and you want to move on to how to have, you know, more pragmatic little self-help sermons. Come on. I encourage you to let your heart be stirred for affection for Jesus. Oh, this reading this psalm. Thank you, sister. Whoever that was. Let this song stir your affection for Jesus. Well, let's keep going. Wait for the Lord psalmist says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. He repeats that phrase there twice. You know, when they wrote in biblical times, they didn't have bold face type or underlining buttons on Microsoft Word. And so to emphasize things, they would repeat them think about the watchman waiting for the morning think about now probably a young soldier in afghanistan in an outpost who's on guard for his perimeter or his place of duty or whatever and he's he's waiting for the sun to come up because that light means safety he's looking to the horizon hoping trusting knowing that light will come scanning the perimeter looking out for danger that's what the picture is here in this in this particular two verses here that our soul would wait for the lord but don't we don't we find it so difficult to wait why why do we find it so difficult to quiet ourselves and spend time alone with god think about him bring our hearts to him, and trust him. I think it's because we're, we're addicted. We touched on this earlier. We are addicted to immediate gratification. We hate intervals. We hate dead space. So we fill them with distractions. Let me read a quote to you from this book by Peter Kreft, and he has taken Blaise Pascal, who was a French philosopher and probably a Christian uh, back in the 1600s. He was a, a French guy, and he wrote a, a, a just a, a very famous work called Pinzies, which is a French word for thought, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but Peter Kreft sort of updated some of his language, and here's what he writes about Pascal's answer to uh, our modern soul and how nervous we are, and Kreft talks about how, since the Industrial Revolution, our lives, which you would have thought would have become uh, more easy because of technological invention, have actually become more complex, and we have less time, and he talked about, he says, hey, your great-grandmother Used to have to make all her own meals and she would have to milk a cow and then she would have to actually sit down and talk to her daughter. But it seemed like she had more time in the day than we do. And we've got machines to do all of those things for us. And so he asked this question why don't we have more time? What is it with the modern soul? And he says here, since you are probably impatient like most people today, I will tell you Pascal's answer immediately. Listen to this we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, we want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had leisure, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. So we run around like conscientious little bugs, scared rabbits, dancing attendants on our machines, our slaves, making them our masters. We think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down we know this would be unendurable to us, like a dark and empty room without distractions, where we would be forced to confront ourselves. If you are typically modern, your life is a rich mansion. Listen to this last picture. Your life is like a rich mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. You find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is emptiness and wretchedness and death. How in the world do you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. You cover it with a million mice. You multiply diversions. Doesn't that explain our tendency we don't often wait for the Lord because we, we can't stand actually coming into the Lord's presence, coming, grip, coming to grips with ourselves and seeing him face to face. So here's my question. What is your biggest obstacle to waiting and spending time with the Lord? I mean practically. Do you need to take that smartphone and go to the river walk and throw it into the river? Do you need to turn off that radio? Turn off that TV? Do you need to block out seven to 10 every night and sit down and actually have a conversation with your family? What do you, what do you need to do? I'm going to trust right now that the Holy Spirit will bring sufficient conviction and that you can hear him. What is your biggest obstacle to waiting, spending time with the Lord? Finally, we end with this, verses 7 and 8. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I want to end with this. There's just this beautiful look now to hope. It starts out with amazing honesty and humility, saying, God, my life isn't a mess and I think I have myself to blame for this. I could blame shift and point to some other contributing factors, but let's not worry about that right now. I am in this hole because I am in this hole because of my iniquities. And if we were to count them up, Lord, who could stand? And so, Lord, lift up my gaze so that I would wait for you. Help me not be diverted. And now, to keep us from sinking into guilt and sorrow and condemnation, I believe the psalmist comes along with this word of hope. And he says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord for with the lord there is steadfast love that word steadfast in the original language this word was this verse was written in Hebrew is a word called hased which means the covenant love of god it means that he doesn't leave you he doesn't forsake you when you have a bad day when you repent and believe in jesus when you are forgiven you are his forever he does not cast his people away and so let that be a confidence with you, that there is coming a day when things will be made right. And it may not be in this lifetime, but there is hope in God. He redeems his people. He eventually sets things right. Let me read to you a beautiful passage out of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul writing. And it it just so describes well our broken lives and our broken world and I think it goes along so well with this psalm. It says in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, this whole world and everything in it knows that it's broken and it's waiting for God to finally bring justice and redeem his people so that all things could be made right. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what this verse is saying is that God in his providence and in his sovereignty has allowed things to be the way they are. So that it could be a display of his glory, and that ultimately he would make all things right. So, all this aching and all this pain that we feel in the world and in our own individual lives would eventually be made right as we long for the Lord and thus glorify the Lord. And he continues, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Friends, that explains so many things. I mean, that's why there are oil spills in the Gulf. That's why there are wars, because things are not as they should be, and life and culture and society groans, waiting for God to finally bring justice. That's why we have locks on our doors. That's why... That's why we have banks. Like, I know the financial industry is big, as, big in our town, and I'm glad for you that work for Columbus Bank and Trust or Synovus, but do you realize that you have a job because the world is broken? Think about it. We're locking up our money so other people don't steal it. If that isn't like a case study in human wickedness, I don't know what is, Thank you, bankers, that you sort of devise a system where we can gain interest on this and invest all that kind of stuff. But at the base of it all is human depravity. I can't hide my stuff on my mattress because you'll crawl in my house at night and take it. Maybe not you, but other people will. (laughs) The point is, is that the world is broken, man. It's broken. And it's groaning, waiting for God to bring final justice. Verse 23 And not only creation, but we ourselves, in other words, Christians, those who've repented and believed in Jesus for salvation, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we're starting to just a little bit look like Jesus. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So listen, there is a lie passed off in cultural Christianity that you come to Jesus and everything will be okay. (laughs) My experience has been sort of the opposite. You come to Jesus... And there's kind of this little nirvana grace period. We're like, yay, don't i even going to step on an ant. Everything, no, but then, but then life sets in and you realize if you start grabbing a hold of the Bible just how broken this world is and how everything is pointed towards God and his redemptive plan. And it gets you in touch with the way things really are. But it should help you lift your tin to see that God once and for all will bring justice. And that is our hope. That is our hope. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see, and we wait for it with patience. Friend, is your life in a mess? We could be honest and peel back the curtain. Would you be in a depth? So be encouraged. The Lord invites you to cry to him. He calls us to wait for him. And he's reminding us to hope in him. Hope in God. Well, as the guys come back to lead us in some time of response. Let's do this. guys are going to come back and um, get ready to play, but before they play, uh, I'm just going to ask us to just spend a moment or two in just silence, asking the Holy Spirit to speak directly to each of us individually in our situation, to bring wisdom and to bring clarity, conviction. Are you a Christian in here today and like me, in many occasions, you've kind of let your eyes get hurried and hassled on the horizon, and you just need to you need to wait for God. Maybe you need to cry out to God today. Maybe you need to recalibrate your hope in God. It take just a moment to think about that. Maybe you're not a Christian, and it's become apparent to you that you are not a Christian. You're wondering, what in the world can I do about that? Repent and believe. Look to Jesus. Make the decision. Now, this is called faith. Make the decision to turn from self-reliance and trust in Jesus, and you will be forgiven. You need some help talking through that. I'll be down here in just a moment. Don McKelvey will be around. You want to talk to me afterwards or a person that you know to be a Christian about what that means, I'm sure they'd be glad to talk to you. Do that. Just a moment when the band begins to play, communion will be open for those. Communion is something that Christians do. And it is when we remember what Jesus did on the cross, the little pieces of bread represent his broken body and the juice represents his spilled blood. This is a family meal. Here at this church, we don't require that you be a member of this church to partake of communion, but we do ask that you respect this as something that Christians do. So if you're not a Christian yet, you're not sure, really ask for you not to take part in that. This is a family meal here. And so if you are a born-again believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come and receive communion and think about God, examine your life, remember the cross, and pray on your own. But before the band begins to lead us in a couple songs of response, and before I pray to end, let's, let's just be quiet for just a few seconds and ask God to come and speak. Let's do that. Oh, Father, our souls are hurried and anxious. I know mine is. So, would you give us the kind grace now of hearing your voice and responding to you with earnestness, focus, passion? Lord, there's a man in here right now that needs to repent of his sexual sin. And he needs to come out of his little dark closet and he needs to go to a brother and he needs to confess it he needs to go to his wife he needs to confess it and he needs for once to breathe redemption Lord there is I, I, very likely a young lady in here who's absorbed with the idolatry of the brokenness of what our culture tells her that beauty is and she spends all of her waking days toiling over how she looks. Lord, would you help that sweet sister repent of her idolatry and look to you and wait to you. Lord, there are scores of upper-class people in this room who are arrogant, self-righteous, and lazy. I'm one of them. And we need to turn from our carefully crafted idols of money and house and comfort, and we need to trust in you. We need to put down our gadgets and hear you. Lord, there are confused, wounded souls in this room who need the sweet and gentle voice of a shepherd. But they, too, need to repent from their idolatry and their anxiety and their self-absorption. They need to see Jesus. So, Lord, would you come now? And would we wait, hope, and cry to you? In Jesus' name.